Welcome to a special edition of the Development Podcast from the World Bank Group. I'm Ntombi Siwale. This is the third of five episodes recapping the World Bank Group IMF Spring Meeting. This year's discussions took place as the world tackled overlapping crisis and conflicts from growing food insecurity, war in Ukraine, climate change, and more. So how can we navigate and manage uncertainty and build resilience? And how can we best help the most vulnerable living with conflict, violence, or in fragile situations? Unprecedented times uh, need unprecedented uh, actions. The most important thing is we need to stay engaged. We cannot walk away Mm -hmm. just because it is difficult. The country is grappling with growing numbers of displaced people. It's like being a Colombian citizen without the voting Mm -hmm. when it has every single other opportunity. So it's it's very integral and it's very long-term in its approach because it's really going to allow these families to set up a life in Colombia. And what role can the private sector play? These small businesses, uh, what we call the informal sector, unfortunately, are actually the ones able to provide the daily jobs which people need. That's all coming up in the next 25 minutes here on the Development Podcast. In the last few months, we have seen threats to stability in Asia, Latin America and Africa. And now with the war in Ukraine, Europe joins the list, the ripple effects of which are already being felt across the globe. Today, it is estimated that more than half the world's poor reside in economies suffering from fragility and conflict. By 2030, two-thirds of the world's poor are expected to live in these conditions. It's clear that eliminating extreme poverty will require an urgent focus on these fragile contexts. One country which has been grappling with conflict for years is Yemen. His Excellency, Mayin Abdul-Malik Saeed, Prime Minister of Yemen, spoke to Kathleen Hayes, Global Economic and Policy Editor at Bloomberg Television and Radio. Kathleen asked the Prime Minister about the development challenges repeated crises have presented and the key steps the government has taken to address them. Yemen facing a complicated, severe uh, crisis, and now accumulated during the seven years of war. Humanitarian crisis, we have uh, uh, deteriorating an economy. UNDB estimated that the Yemen economy is set back two decades, and if it go back maybe to four decades if it continue. We have uh, four million IDBs, internally displaced people, We have 20 million insecure, food insecure in Yemen. And also with the COVID-19 that we face in 2020, the main concern for the the government is to preserve the economy. Uh, We don't want the people to lose the purchasing power. Uh, We need to control the deterioration of the currency. So let's talk more about the role the international community has played. What, What steps have been most important? Where could this assistance, this you know, this cooperation improve? One of the key issues is stay engaging. The cost of disengaging is high and also uh, mitigating risk rather than avoiding risks is important. And also presence on the ground. If any, the donors knows uh, more about political atmosphere and economic atmosphere inside the country, they can design good ways in implementation and helping the country. 
and also balancing between uh, emergency response and uh, long-term development. It's always emergency response, but, but we need to balance that. You know, the world is watching the war in Ukraine. We know there are several countries around the world that are in crisis. What lessons can they learn from Yemen, from the steps you have taken, how you've gotten through this? We uh, have 31% of our uh, wheat come from Ukraine at the beginning of this year. That's why by the you know, wheat prices raise uh, seven times between 2015 until now. In a country like Yemen with the loose purchasing power, that affects a lot of a big sector of people. We are facing a devastating situation by the end of this year. The issue also is important to scaling support to the countries uh, like Yemen. Unprecedented times uh, need unprecedented uh, actions. The response of the crisis determine uh, how we can build back better after the crisis. So the response should be unique. So it's one of the lessons learned from the Ukraine-Russian war that affect the whole world, not only Yemen. His Excellency, Mayin Abdul-Malik Saeed, Prime Minister of Yemen, spoke to Kathleen Hayes, Global Economic and Policy Editor at Bloomberg Television and Radio. Forced displacement is a growing global challenge, and a surge in violent conflict since 2010 has led to historically high levels of people forced to leave their homes. Now, the war in Ukraine has caused the fastest-growing refugee crisis in Europe since the end of World War II. And globally, there are more than 84 million forcibly displaced people. One country which has been tackling this issue for some years is Colombia, where people from neighboring Venezuela number over 1.7 million. Kathleen Hayes asked Alejandro Botero, Director General, Department of Planning in Colombia, how her country has addressed the issues. Colombia has become, for several years now, a critical refuge for Venezuelans. Venezuelan migrants who are leaving because of insecurity, instability, violence. So how did this evolve? How did you do what you had to do? And, and can you have any suggestions, any share your experience for what other countries can do in this position? We have about 4% of the population right now of Colombia is comprised of Venezuelan migrants. Six million Venezuelans have left Venezuela. Of them, five are staying in Latin America, and it is estimated that around two million of them are in Colombia, where a country of 50 million people, so about 4%. Um, of these uh, two million people, half of them are undocumented. So they come, they cross the border without any documents, without anything. 97% of them are under 55. Uh, 35% are, sorry, 40% are between 25 and 50, so working age, and the rest are young youth. So you have to have a very focused mechanism mm -hmm. on families who are coming, mostly yeah. looking for economic opportunities, and they're coming, people who are coming to work and the children. What I think the key issue, and I think what has been recognized internationally, is the temporary protection statute that we emitted last year. It's a temporary protection statute for 10 years. Very few countries in the world have done a 10-year mm. working permit. And it gives every single right except voting rights. So social rights, civil rights, economic rights. It's like being a Colombian citizen without the voting, mm -hmm. but it has every single other opportunity. So it's very integral and it's very long-term in its approach because it's really going to allow these families to set up a life 
in Colombia. Now, this can't be done if we don't think about an articulation of all the other sec sectors in addition to migration, both on a national level or on a territorial level, because if we're going to promise to give them mm -hmm. all the services so that they can be part of the social system, that, that they can be part of, of the health system, that they can go to the schools, everything, you have to have a plan to integrate the migrants at all these sectors. And that's why setting up a center of government approach, it's an office in the presidency that makes sure that all the sectors are doing the plan at the same time because it's been, this has been very wow. short and very recent. So to give you an example, we have to make sure that the banks accept the temporary okay. protection status to be able to open an account. Uh -huh. You have to make sure that they're in the health service so that they can access the health program and so on. This is a, a great idea turned into actually all the nuts and bolts that you need to get it done. Very impressive. Exactly. How about helping uh, the most vulnerable people, women, women with children, kids? Um, in terms of numbers of the temporary protection status, we have almost 100% of the Venezuelan population that is right now in Colombia has applied for the temporary protection status, and we've given around 700,000 already physically. But when they apply, what's great is that we have, they have to fill up a questionnaire. Mm -hmm. And that questionnaire serves to understand who they are, sure. because half of them were undocumented. So who they are, what education level do they have, what skills do they have, you know, where do they think we're going? And that information is fundamental to be able to target the most vulnerable population. So in that sense, for example, one of the biggest issues that we've had is the fiscal weight that this has meant on the health system because they're coming in very dire conditions directly to the emergency system when they're not regulated and in the emergency system versus being part of the health system it costs 2.5 times more to help someone so to making sure with the temporary protection status that they are in the health system and that way it's less uh, expensive for the country to be able to help them it has been I think one of the key success factors when it comes to the health program also working with the local governments to see what are the hospitals that are attending the biggest number of, of migrants and refugees. Kathleen Hayes speaking to Alejandra Botera. So with this in mind what can we do to help? Let's hear from experts, changemakers, and people on the front lines of the Humanitarian Development Peace Nexus to learn how the international community can come together to assist the most vulnerable. Kathleen Hayes, Global Economic and Policy Editor at Bloomberg Television and Radio. Hervé Andoba is Minister of Finance for the Central African Republic. Axel von Trotzenberg is the Managing Director of Operations here at the World Bank. And Catherine Russell is Executive Director for UNICEF. I welcome you all. Uh, Everyone, let me start with you. Lasting recovery, that's quite an accomplishment. How did you make that happen? And, and how has the World Bank supported your efforts? Thank you very much for this question and for the opportunity to give in to talk about Central African Republic, my country, which is known for the last three decades to uh, live in a period of, 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 of social crisis. We actually have been able to establish security into the into the country and we are working very hard those measures are from so, some of them political uh, measures and, and some of them financial measure for the political uh, measures for example uh, we've started to be some tools into the country for example uh, the the ddrr which is demobilization disarmament um, reintegration and um, and reinstitutions of, of, of people who used to 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 be into the war so that we can integrate them back into the the, the society uh, we also have setting up um, another tool which is a APPR which is a uh, 
uh, political agreements, uh, yes, with the with all the stakeholders uh, of this conflict. Uh, at the high peak of, of the crisis, uh, we count 17 army groups into the country, but we've been able to manage all those army groups into those uh, different uh, tools. We are also uh, doing important things uh, on the financial parts. Of course, when we are facing fragility, uh, the fiscal space is very reduced, right. and we have to to find solutions in order to increase this this fiscal space. And then we uh, have started um, cleanup okay. of the of the public financing. Uh -huh. This is very important, and uh, I'm very pleased to have the World Bank on the uh, on the table because we have uh, two projects which are very important for us, according digitalization, for example, and we are we are working on those uh, on the subject in order to move forward. Uh, Catherine, hundreds of millions of children have had their educations not just disrupted, but maybe permanently damaged, thrown off track. And it seems also in some of the poorest countries, they're going to have the hardest time catching up because they don't have the richness of resources. How is UNICEF, how are you going to use all the partnerships you have with so many countries, so many other agencies to work on this? We have 260 million kids who weren't in school. This is pre-COVID, right? We had 50% of 10-year-olds in low- and middle-income countries couldn't understand a simple sentence, read and understand a simple sentence. So now we have COVID on top of that. We've had school closures. We have 23 countries still where schools are not fully back on track. These children have been out of classes for so long. Uh, they've lost so much learning. Our estimate now is that it's close to 70% of children in some of these countries at age 10 can't, don't have very basic skills. UNICEF is very focused on this, very committed to this, but we cannot do this alone. We need partnerships. And one really good example of that is the work we've been doing in Yemen, where we work with several people. Save the Children is doing teacher training. The World Bank has thankfully come and done financing for us. UNICEF is doing uh, a lot of work building and refurbishing schools and also providing uh, a lot of the basics for mm -hmm. children to learn. The World Food Program is there providing food, right? So okay. everybody comes together. Uh, you have to have the coordination efforts. It's, it's not easy to coordinate in these places, but we now have a thousand schools that are open and operating in Yemen where it's a dreadful situation yeah. overall. And so many children are still out of school and hungry and lots of problems, but you can show that we can make progress even in the most difficult circumstances. Axel, I wanna ask you about the fragility, conflict and violence strategy of the World Bank. I mean, if in this, this uh, what we kind of call the FCV focus right. and strategy, what have you learned? What, what would you say the, 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 the main focus is now? What we have had for, for decades, far too long, were, uh, was a paradigm of pillars. Here you have humanitarian, here you have developed, here you have mm -hmm. security. So now we talk about the nexus. And here is uh, basically what it is. Nobody can do this alone. You have to work together and to see how we can complement each other's str strengths. And, and this is badly needed, not only for, for actually having having results on the ground, but actually that the situations are difficult. Take and take in Afghanistan, when uh, you cannot uh, uh, really deal with the Taliban, but at the same time, people are suffering. Yeah. How can you still there? Mm -hmm. There, the UN is a great or uh, a great organ, UNICEF, we have, uh, but uh, WFP. But uh, there are many other 
interventions that you have to do. And that means that you have to coordinate that smartly with bilateral, with multilateral. And I think that is uh, where we need, uh, uh, what I'm learning is actually most what I've learned now with Afghanistan since August last year, is we have an Afghanistan Reconstruction Trust Fund where donors are coordinated and, and, and where we are actually discussing the hard questions, not to find an excuse not to do it, but to do mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And I think we have been able to make progress because you need also to, to find a consensus on this. Ultimately, what is from, uh, from an operational perspective is about a third of the IDA uh, resources are going to uh, uh, FCB countries. And it's also the right thing to do. But we have also to realize that the last year has been a total disaster. What FCB countries, it started with coup d'etats in Myanmar. You saw Afghanistan, Yemen, uh, Horn of Africa, Sahel, and not to forget Haiti. But the most important thing is we need to stay engaged. We cannot walk away mm -hmm. just because it is difficult. The question for everybody, a little bit more of a lightning round here. Ukraine is going to take a lot of attention and should take a lot of attention. Also, the other FCV countries deserve a lot of attention. So we need to do the dual test. You know, there can be a hotspot that where we need now to focus on. We cannot forget on the other countries. And then particularly in the, in the delivery and the coordination, it needs to be on the delivery. Like, for example, in the UN family, you have different agencies who are good at the delivery. I think UNICEF is, has an excellent track record. WFP, they're on and they're moving it. With those agencies, you can actually yeah. move a lot. And, and I think the final thing is we need to stay very, very focused on this because our estimate shows that extreme poverty will be concentrated in the FCB in the next couple of years. So if we want to uh, stop that trend, we have to invest. Catherine. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I would say roughly 425 million children right now are living in conflict zones, right? That's more than ever before in, in UNICEF's history. So you have that and you have, you have a, a, a crisis with the climate and you have a conflict and you have COVID. So these children are, are living in places where the, co the compounding of the efforts or, or the challenges requires the compounding of the responses, right? And we need to be smarter about how we try to deliver responses to these people. And I think it means being smarter about how we do education. It means building resilience into our sanitation and water programs, right? It means really doing our best to deliver the best for the people who are most in need, because those are the people who never, they, they it's, it's always the most fragile situations, the poorest children and the children who are out of school, and then they have conflict and it's just one thing after another. And I think we have to try to respond to that in a multilateral and coordinated and multi-sectoral way. Executive Director for UNICEF, Catherine Russell. A quick reminder, you're listening to a special edition of the Development Podcast with me, Ntombi Siwale. Namaste, I'm Shilpa in New Delhi. Fufu, I'm Muslim Sidi Mohammed in Niamey, Niger. Hello, Luyumi, everyone. I am Leisande in Port Vila, Vanuatu. Hello. I'm Piram Kov in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. I am Mampumza Estar in Uganda. World Bank Group IMF Spring Meeting. World Bank Group IMF Spring Meeting. World Bank Group IMF Spring Meetings. The World Bank Group IMF Spring Meeting. 
Let's find out more about how the private sector can play an essential role in this context, even in situations where there is ongoing conflict or a lack of strong institutions. Magda Diop is the managing director of the International Finance Corporation, a member of the World Bank Group and the largest global development institution focused on the private sector in emerging markets. He was joined by Donald Kaberuka, co-chair, United Nations Secretary-General's high-level panel on international displacement, and by Mary Nazal, founder of Landmark Hotels and 17 Ventures. Makta began by summarizing how he sees the global situation. In my entire career, I've never seen a period like this with so many shocks and so many different types of shocks and the magnitude and the size of these shocks. So we are faced with a multi-phase challenge and in a very unpredictable geopolitical environment. At the same time, more than ever, we know that the private sector can play a role in promoting peace and prosperity. The situation demands, obviously, uh, bold action to venture the world in the world's difficult places. Uh, we need to be persuasive enough to convince our private sector partner to invest in fragile country, but also we need to think differently about how the private sector can engage and how can help mitigate the risk of working in this context. When I was president of the African Development Bank, one of the first things I did was to create a department to deal with uh, the fragility in some parts of Africa. Because I found that we are not good at doing it. International organizations were used to rewarding good performance, indeed, which means that those countries who are mired in conflict were not getting the resources they needed, actually, to get things done. And second, I recognize that when we say situational fragility, we basically mean that there's no effective state to deliver services. If you take case of Somalia, Africa's first failed state. It is a business community which actually kept the country together in some ways. If you go to a place like Hargeisa or even Bissau Mogadishu, what was providing hospitals, schools, infrastructure, digital uh, facility was business people supported by banks like Dab Shield, uh, which had found a way of making uh, transfers from Somalis abroad uh, quite effective. Business can actually uh, function reasonably well, even when the state is not able to pursue its function. But business does not have to mean big business. It means from the smallest company delivering digital payments, from the smallest company delivering uh, goods, services. Far too often, actually, these small businesses, uh, what we call the informal sector, unfortunately, are actually the ones able to provide the daily jobs which people need. And the absence of government, curiously enough, actually, often removed the burden, especially regulatory burden, uh, on some of them. Now, I'm not saying that uh, that is necessarily a good thing, because you need a business environment which is regulated, which can settle disputes and the lot of it. But the experience of in Somalia basically is that actually people have managed to set up informal rules and regulations, informal dispute resolution mechanisms, and business has been uh, booming. The World Bank set up something which I find completely uh, exemplary. It worked with uh, governments of some African countries. I was in the government of Rwanda at the time. And we agreed to part with a bit of our IDA location money to seed an organization called the ATI, Africa Trade Insurance Agency, which basically picked up the risks in countries where there was civil or coming out of civil, where business, both production and trading, was difficult. I just wish it had been uh, 
uh, brought to scale because it has the capacity to pick up some of those risks which some business people are not willing to, to take up. Thank you so much, Donald. You bring me to a time when we, I visited IQ uh, Somalia and it was amazing to see how the private sector was brilliant and was creative. Mary, you might think that the situation is very different in the Palestinian territories, but uh, there are a lot of similarities with what uh, uh, have been said by Donald in some part of Africa. Tell me a little bit what is uh, the success of your model and what do you measure, measure success in general? So the model that we have, our core value is that you can do well and do good at the same time. So we have adopted several causes whether they are poverty, displacement, gender equality, sustainable agriculture, as part of our business. And we have also partnered with organizations such as Endeavor to create an innovation impact hub within our hotel. So this shows because the private sector is so agile, it can take on causes beyond their core business. And I think looking at the multiple crises that we are facing as humanity, even pre-pandemic, it shows that the public sector and private sector and civil society need to work together within the spirit of SDG 17. I'd like to state that I am speaking to you today from a very small but aspiring company called Kama. This is a social enterprise that is empowering women all over Jordan to create artisanal products for export. And it's an example of how a small company can create jobs for women who need it the most. And there is another company that I'd like to highlight that I've been supporting for the past 10 years called SEP Jordan. And this is Jordan's first B Corp. And they are creating jobs in the poorest refugee camp in Jordan. So the point is that no matter what your business is, whether it's making za'atar, which is a local herb, or whether it's embroidery on scarves like Sep Jordan, you can always incorporate social justice work or human rights work within your business. But what needs to be done to attract them, to de-risk them? Because there are companies which don't have a lot of financial resources, which are entering a difficult environment. What can we do more to support you and to support from a policy stand what they are doing. Donald. What these people need, they need security. The second point they need most is someone to pick up some of the risks they face. I think the World Bank in the past has been very instrumental in experimenting with some of those uh, risk mitigating instruments. The third thing they will need is data, information. Look, take a bank like Dahabshir. First time the, the issue of money laundering or terrorist financing was becoming a threat and uh, banks were being uh, sanctioned, uh, a lot of European banks stopped dealing with the Habshir. You know this. So all these uh, transfers of Somalis living in Scandinavia or Canada was difficult to transfer to their country. I wrote personally letter to some European leaders and a number of uh, executives of the banks. I said, this is the wrong thing to do. Let us identify what? Who is the sender of the money? Who is the receiver of the money? Let us have that data, all right? Once we have that, then criminality in between can be minimized. We have worked from 2018 to design the first blended finance investment fund for Jordan. And we uh, used the first loss facility. And the idea there, of course, was to de-risk real risk or perceived risk. I don't really know sometimes what it is. So our fund, we have a refugee lens 
in the sense that we are looking to invest in companies that hire refugees or are run by re refugees. We're also looking at companies that are inclusive when it comes to people with disabilities. So we have to identify and increase the amount of impact capital providers that are looking beyond the bottom line. But I think for all investors, countries need to have an investment climate where they find consistency, transparency, uh, especially when it comes to tax regulations. Mary Nazal finishing the illuminating discussion with Magda Diop and Donald Kaberuka about the role the private sector can play in the face of escalating instability. Plenty of food for thought. That's all for this edition of the Development Podcast. I'm Ntombi Siwale. The producer is Sarah Trina. And please do join us for our next episode, where we'll be hearing from more global leaders. They'll be discussing how to best preserve open trade around the world. It's a don't miss listen. So please do join us next time.